You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I just want to take time to thank Ken and Sam for um, filling in, and for everybody else that helped out while we were gone for a couple weeks. We had a wonderful time with family up in Idaho, and um, it was a blessed time, and uh, thank you for giving us that time away. But um, this morning we're back in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we've been looking at this book now for uh, some 12 lessons, and we'll continue. And I just want to ask you if you would uh, stand in honor of God's word as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Father, we ask you to bless these verses to our heart this morning as we look at this context of Paul sharing his emotions with us that he was torn away from the people he loved. And Father, we just pray that you would apply this to our hearts in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've looked so far at the good news in this, in this chapter and the sad news and the bad news. We talked about what it means to believe the Bible. We said that believing the Bible um, means that we have to accept its authority in every area of our lives. We don't get to pick and choose. Secondly, in verse 14, we said that believing the Bible means accepting the opposition it brings, and it does bring much opposition. There's a lot less opposition up in Idaho, (laughs) let me tell you. (laughs) But we have to accept that. Believing the Bible means accepting, fourth or thirdly there, it's judgment on society, verses 14. 15 to 16, and um, we considered all that, and now beginning in verse 17, Paul's narrative of his relationship with the Thessalonians it takes a turn, it takes a decided turn. You see, up to this point, everything that we talked about in this letter that Paul was writing, everything that he was talking about, talks about the relationship in the past, what has gone on in the past. He talked about his coming to them initially. He talked about their conversion. He talked about the nature of his ministry when he was among them. He talked about their ongoing suffering at the hands of their fellow citizens. And now Paul begins to narrate. He changes direction and he begins to narrate how he and his companions, Silas and Timothy, have handled their absence since their hasty withdrawal from the city some months past. Remember, Paul went there, he planted this church, and then opposition rose up after probably just a few weeks, and he was forced to leave. Can you imagine planting a church as a pastor, seeing people come to Christ, everybody's excited, and then all of a sudden you have to leave? (laughs) That wouldn't be a good thing. And so his heart was really torn And he begins to narrate here 
from verses 17 all the way down through the end of chapter 3, basically. Remember the, the, the chapters and the verses and, and the numbers and everything, they're not inspired. They're just there for our guidance. So this continues all the way down through the end of chapter 3. Don't worry, we're not going to do all that today. We're just going to go down through chapter uh, 2, verse 20. But he begins there in verses 17 to 20 with this declaration, you might say, of his feelings. He expresses his love for the Thessalonians. He expresses his feelings about being away from them, about not being there physically with them. And he even talks about his repeated attempts to return. And, and we read there that he said in, in verse 18... Because we wanted to come to you, meaning him, Paul, and Silas. But then he says, I, Paul, again and again. So he emphasizes himself, which gives the indication that he literally was writing this with his own pen. Sometimes people wrote for him, but here we believe that he was literally writing this. And he wants them to understand that it's a hard thing to be away from the body of Christ. It's a hard thing to be away from a church that you just planted. And his, his failure to return, even though he wanted to, he points out to us, he attributes ultimately to who? To Satan. He ultimately says, you know what? It was Satan's intervention that stopped me from returning. But then he concludes by explaining why he longed to see them. He doesn't go into detail what happened. He doesn't, he doesn't go into detail how Satan prevented him from coming. But being the Apostle Paul, I'm sure that there was a myriad of things throughout his ministry we know of that, that Satan was attacking him over and over and over again. And we're going to look at that. That's verses 17 to 20. And we're going to cover that today in a message I've entitled, Absence Makes the Heart Grow Fonder, The Power of Separation. In other words, sometimes you feel more affection for those you love when you're away from them, don't you? You just do. We're going to cover that section today. Sometimes we're apart from loved ones, and even for a very short time in our hearts, miss them. Our hearts yearn to be with them, to long to see them again. And then we spend time together once again, and those feelings, what, seem to fade away, right? Um, You know, we do that a lot when you go and you visit. You know, hey, you're all excited. It's great. Well, by the third week, you're going, okay, when can I sleep in my own bed? You know, that's just how we are, right? And it, it doesn't just mean people either have you ever been displaced from your house maybe you were moved out because of a fire or a flood or bugs or whatever and you had to get the house tenants so you had to go stay in a hotel for a week you know the first couple days it's kind of nice right you're, oh, this is great by the third day you're thinking man I, I want my house back bugs and all I want, I want the bed I want the whole nine yards right I want to be in a place that that I feel comfortable people that travel a lot you know, you always think, oh, it would be so nice just to travel all the time and stay in a hotel. No, you know what? You would miss it. You would miss your home. Um, even though sometimes it's annoying to be there, you really miss it. And this is a cycle that we all go through. 
And the next paragraph, beginning in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, and I kind of outlined it there for you in the, out, in the outline. Paul explains why he sent Timothy. He goes on to explain why he did what he did and why he couldn't come personally. Um, and he, saw, he sent Timothy in his place. Now remember, Paul is writing this letter through Timothy. So he's in a place where he's removed from, from them physically. And he sends Timothy back to them. And Timothy comes back with this wonderful report. And then what does Paul do? Then Paul writes this letter. So he understands this, their situation. He understands their growing spiritually. He understands the good report that Timothy brought back. But his heart still yearns to be with them. And he, he, he gives a couple reasons there in, in chapter 3 for his reason, reasoning he wants to see them. And it all has to do with their faith. It all has to do with their faith. It doesn't have to do with the cupcakes they baked him when he was there or anything like that or the free fish that they gave. No, it has to do with their faith. He's so focused on their faith time and time again. And in chapter 3, verse 2, you see that he wants to strengthen and encourage them regarding their faith. And then in verse 5, he kind of closes out that section. And he wants to learn about their faith, whether they were, in fact, truly hanging in there as believers. Because really, that's the most important thing, right? I mean, when people move away, you know, you talk to them and, oh, how's this going? Oh, it's great. You know, but really, what's the most important thing? How are you doing spiritually? Have you found a church? Are you plugged in? Are you continuing to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? That's more important than health. That's more important than wealth. That's more important than anything. And this is what he focuses on. And then in the next couple paragraphs here in chapter 3, verses 6 to 10, the next paragraph, he shows basically an exhibition of his great relief with Timothy's message back to him. When Timothy went and visited them, and he was able to go back to Paul, and he told them, hey, they're hanging in there. They're doing great. God is doing a work. Yeah, they're being persecuted, and there's, there's some situations that need to be addressed, but for the most part, they're doing very well. And he, he lets them know. He concludes with thanksgiving, joy, prayer, in regard to their faith. And then he winds up chapter 3 in verses 11 through 13 with an entreaty or entreaty of, of prayer. And he basically shares that with us. Well, as you recall, Paul's departure from Thessalonica was abrupt and it was unplanned. Remember, if you turn over to Acts chapter 17, it tells us this. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. I'll just read it for us just so we're, we're all on the same page and we remember what happened. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, <clears throat> they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. It doesn't mean he just stayed there three weeks. It means that he was allowed to teach for three weeks. We think he stayed a little longer. Explaining and proving, verse 3, that it was necessary 
for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. That was the beginning of the church there. As did a great many of devout Greeks. And not a few of the leading women. So there was a substantial group of people that responded positively to the gospel. Verse 5, but the Jews, the religious people of the day, the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, who was hosting them seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Verse 8, And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason, kind of like a bail, hey, we'll leave you out of, out of jail if you do what we say. And the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So as a result of this assault on Jason's house, where they were apparently staying, Paul and Silas were shipped off to the next town, Berea, under the cover of darkness. And from the time of that hasty midnight departure, Paul was filled with some intense desire to return. He wanted to go back. He wanted to continue the ministry there. This very desire attests to the power of the relationship that he had with these new believers. We see the apostle's heart for these new converts in Thessalonica. He, he expresses his care for his new children in the faith in a very emotional language. He wants them to know how deeply he feels about them. And how kind of riddled with pain his, his, his heart is because of this forced separation from them. And the theme runs all the way through the end of the chapter 3 there. But today we're just going to cover the first, last couple of verses of chapter 2. Paul, Paul's example teaches us that if we want to impact people for eternity, you, you have to have some care and concern for them. This is what the church is all about. If we truly care for one another, we will want to be together as a body of Christ to strengthen and to encourage each other spiritually. In these couple first verse, closing verses of chapter 2, we see Paul's deep desire to be with these people who had become very dear to him. But due to reasons beyond his control, he couldn't come to them. He couldn't just simply go down the street and visit them. So what did he do? He did the next best thing. He sent Timothy back. He said, somebody's got to go check up on these people. He wanted Timothy to at least strengthen and encourage them in their faith. Even though that would have meant that Paul was left alone in Athens. And after Timothy returned to, to Paul with good news about 
their faith and their love, Paul rejoiced and he wrote this letter that, that is a result of Timothy's visitation. I mean, one concern, really, that Timothy reported to Paul were the enemies of, um, of the church there in Thessalonica. They had forced him to leave town and they were attacking now his motives, you might say, with these new converts. They were saying things like, you know what, we understand how you got carried away by these smooth-talking foreigners. <laughs> they really seemed concerned about you, and they led you to believe that they had, their, they had your best interests at heart. But obviously, their sudden departure, they left you high and dry, and their failure to return shows, you know what, these guys don't really care about you like we do. We're still here. Matter of fact, they're probably relaxing in some luxurious hotel with all the money you gave them, chuckling about how easy it was to dupe you. Now you're, you're suffering. You're being publicly ridiculed because you believe these silly myths that these foreigners put upon you. Why don't you just forget about this thing about Jesus and being the king and all that? And just go back to the, leading the normal life. Just go back to your life as it was before these guys showed up. It's so easy. We even let you back in the synagogue and we can just all just kind of hold hands. And So Paul here is sharing his heart with how much he cared for these people. And the first thing here, if we truly care for one another, we will want to be together. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If we truly care for one another, we will want to be together. A couple things here. The desire to be together stems from our genuine caring for one another. Look at what he says in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, that speaks to the time, in person, not in heart, that speaks to the the distance or the place, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because, Paul is saying, of this intense opposition that had dragged Jason out of his house, one of the new believers, before the civil authorities, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had been forced to leave the town quickly, without saying goodbye, under the cover of darkness. That word there, in the Greek, torn away from you, it was used to refer to children who had lost their parents, or to parents who were separated from their children. They were torn away. It was a very emotionally painful ordeal. And Paul assures the Thessalonians that although they were out of sight, they were not out of mind or his heart. He piles up word upon word to express his deep feelings. He says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face and face. That word desire is used most frequently in the New Testament. And it actually refers to lust. Not in a bad way, but in a good way. You're desiring something so much. Here it's used in the pure sense of that word. We think of lust as something negative. It doesn't always have to be negative. We can also hear his feelings... For these spiritual children, when he tells them in in chapter 3, verse 10, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Once again, he's focused on their faith. 
He uses different words, but equally emotionally, over in Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, he tells the Philippians the same thing. What he has in his heart, he says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he writes this. He tells Timothy, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remembered you constantly in my prayers night and day. Verse 4, he says, as I remembered your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. See, Luke gives us even a more moving picture of how much Paul, as a, as a pastor, cared for those he ministered to. And also how much they cared for Paul. It tells us in Acts chapter 20, verses 36 to 38, He's telling the Ephesian elders there that they're probably not going to see him face to face anymore. And here's how they respond. It says, when he had said these things, verse 36, Acts 20, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And here was the response. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. The the idea is that they kissed him on the neck over and over and over. They wouldn't let him go. At the thought of not seeing him again. Being sorrowful. Most of all because of the word he had spoken. That they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. See Paul calls the Thessalonians brothers. He calls them sisters in Christ. That means in the church, as we know the Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, what are we? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. We are a family. And family, you should want to get together often. Not occasionally, but often. I know there's... Many here who probably have difficult members in their family. And you'd say, you know what, I'd rather not get together with my family at all. I understand that. But we're talking about the family of God, right? We're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ here. I've never understood in all my years in ministry how Sunday morning you can gather 50, 70, 100 people and then on Wednesday night, you have 10. You're doing the exact same thing. You're teaching the word of God. You're coming together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I never understood that. Or some churches, they'll have a prayer meeting. Five people show up. Why is that? Why is that? Because families aren't perfect. Neither is the church. I don't mean to give you a guilt trip, but if you're guilty, you're guilty. See, God has designed the family as a basic unit of society. The family is the the place where we should be accepted. Just because of who we are. We're family. Not because you deserve it. Not because you've done something to deserve it. And the church is the family of God. Amen? Amen? 
I mean, that's why we have a fellowship time after service. So that we can spend time together as the body of Christ. Now, some of you get a little carried away, and we're here till 4.35 sometimes Sunday, which is fine. I've joked with that group that hangs around on Sundays, you know, let's just have a Sunday night service. I mean, it'd be a lot easier. We can go home, catch a quick nap, and come back. We need to ask ourselves these questions. If we truly care about one another, we should want to get together as often as possible. Here was Paul. He was forced away from these people. And he longed. He he couldn't sleep. He prayed through the nights, filled with tears, desiring to be with the body of Christ. such a blessing some Wednesday nights when I see some people come because I know they've driven an hour to get here. I don't know if you've checked the the price of gas lately, but it's not cheap. That speaks to my heart. Their hunger for the word overrides the price of gasoline and their busy week and their work schedule and everything else. They're committed to the body of Christ. They're committed to meeting together for the mutual encouragement and building up Of the body. Well, secondly, not only do we see here the desire to be together stems from our genuine genuine caring for one another, but I think also in verse eighteen it points out he points out that our enemy works to hinder our getting together. Would you agree with that? How many times have you been getting ready for church on Sunday morning? You're committed. Something comes up. Or you're coming Wednesday night, but something comes up. The enemy does not want us together as the body of Christ. That was what was so disheartening to me when the government said, well, as churches, you're not allowed to meet. I thought, whoa, wait a minute. This has never happened before in our country. And I get it, there was a virus we didn't know. We were closed for several weeks. But I think after three or four weeks, Ken and I figured it out. I said, you know what, this ain't right. There's something wrong here. What's the worst possible thing that could happen? We all meet and we get COVID and die. Okay, we go to heaven, so what? <laughs> to say that the church just shouldn't meet, who are the authorities to tell us that? When the word of God tells us the exact Exact opposite. That was from the enemy. And it's very unfortunate that some churches still are not open. In verse 18, he says, we wanted to come to you. Paul, I, Paul, again and again, I wanted to with all of my heart. But you know what? Satan hindered us. We may not think much about it or recognize the enemy's sinister schemes. But Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 tells us that we wrestle against the unseen spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That's exactly what it says. This is something that is very real. Like a wolf preying on a flock of sheep. 
Satan knows that it's easier to pick off the sheep that's not staying with the flock. He understands that. If he can just somehow keep the the flock from getting together, they'll be more vulnerable to his temptations. And those that come at us from the world and the flesh. The word he uses here, he says, hindered us. Satan hindered us, prevented us. It was used of an army cutting through a road so that the other army could not easily get through. In a modern context, it'd be like going to a foreign battlefield and blowing up all the runways so the planes can't land. But how did Paul know that Satan was behind this roadblock? How did he know this? Turn over to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And look at verse verse 6. Acts chapter 16. And we read here that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, this is the the, the Macedonian call, is the the text in the the scripture there. But it says in verse 6, Acts 16, 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, listen, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Wow. Can you imagine being men in ministry and the Holy Spirit telling you, and don't uh, stop preaching? That's hard to understand. Verse 7 And when they had come up from Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them, which is the same Holy Spirit. Verse 8, so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over, come over to Macedonia and help us. Verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, including, uh, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. See, we're not told how the Holy Spirit did not permit the missionaries from preaching in Asia or Bithynia. It just says that he did. It could have been a direct voice from God, or perhaps it was an inner feeling of unrest as they were preparing for their missionary trip. We don't know. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, it says, Paul writes, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, Paul says something was wrong. My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Don't ever think that God doesn't lead us and guide us through the power of the Holy Spirit. No, we're probably not going to see some grand vision as Paul saw, because that was the apostolic age. But God can lead us and guide us through his word, through other believers. Perhaps circumstances block the way. We don't know. Have you ever had a situation where you're trying to get home and you go a certain way and 
for whatever reason, you miss a turn and it takes you a little longer. And then you get to the house and you turn on the news and go, whoa, there was a big wreck on highway, whatever. That was the way I usually go home. Maybe God didn't want you to go to heaven that day. (laughs) He uses circumstances. He uses whatever he can to carry out his purpose. We also don't know how Paul knew that it was Satan hindering him from returning to Thessalonica. We don't know how he knew it was Satan and not the Holy Spirit. We, We don't know that. We're not told. But I think Paul knew from the Old Testament That while Satan can harm God's people, he can only go as far as God permits in his wise purpose for us. God gave Satan permission to inflict great suffering, you remember, on Job, right? In the book of Job. There's also an interesting glimpse into the spirit world when Daniel was fasting and praying for three weeks for enlightenment in Daniel 10. It says, finally, an angel appeared to Daniel and said, in effect, I would have been here sooner, sorry, <laughs> but the prince of Persia withstood me for three weeks until Michael the archangel came to help me. Don't think that there's not a spiritual war going on in the heavenlies. Here, the hindrance could have been the bond that Jason was forced to post, guaranteeing that Paul wouldn't return. Maybe God was protecting him. Or maybe it was Paul's recurring health problem, which he elsewhere, he refers to as a what? A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. We don't know. We're not told. But we do know that in spite of Paul's fervent desire to return to see these dear people again, and in spite of his repeated earnest prayers to do so, somehow Satan blocked the way. Now, some Bible teachers tell us that they have the authority over the devil. You ever watch that on TV? And they can command the devil around almost like he was a trained poodle. They command him here. They command him there. I mean, James does tell us to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. But let me tell you, there's, there's a verse in Mark that people use sometimes and about the parable about binding the strong man when they're, when they're accusing Jesus of doing his works, his supernatural works, by the power of Beelzebub, the, of Satan, basically. They're saying, yeah, you, you do all this work because Satan's empowering you, Jesus. And so he gives him a parable, and he says, how ridiculous is that? Why would Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't make any sense. And he talks about a parable, how if you go into a house to rob the house, you have to first, what? Bind up the strong man. And he's referring in that context that Satan is the strong man. And that's why Jesus came to earth. But nowhere in text of Scripture do we see a command for us to bind Satan. Nowhere. You won't find it. There's no instruction on how to do it. And over and over and over again, I constantly hear it in the prayers of Christians, well-meaning Christians. And Lord, we bind Satan. I just want to shout in the middle of the prayer meeting and go, stop, what are you talking about? 
What do you mean you can bind Satan? Who do you think you are? And, and even if you can bind him, who unbinds him? Who's the person in the prayer meeting? I unbind him. Oh, no, I bind him. Because he's definitely unbound today. The Bible says he's running around like a roaring lion. See, we have to be true to Scripture. And sometimes we get off on these silly spiritual journeys and people take advantage and they put fear in the people, people's hearts. And, oh, Satan, say, Satan is a defeated foe. Thank God for the cross. It is finished. It's over. Is he real? Yes, he's real. Should you resist him with all your might? But you do not need to fear him. There's nothing he can do to you unless God permits it. So we need to make sure that we understand our theology here. We should remember that our unseen enemy, the one thing he doesn't want, he doesn't want us to be together with other believers. He does not want that. Why? Because he knows in that presence, whether it's for fellowship, whether it's for study, in that presence, we will be spiritually encouraged and, and strengthened in our faith. He doesn't want that. Separation may be necessary at times, but it shouldn't be a regular thing. Well, one, the final thing here in verses 19 to 20 19 to 20, the result, the final result of being together as the body of Christ will be an overflowing joy in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming. Look at what he says in verses 19 to 20. For what is our hope or our joy or a crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Isn't not you? He's speaking of the Thessalonians. For you are our glory and joy. See, we learn here that Jesus is Lord, first of all, and that he is coming again, amen, to be with us. He's coming bodily. He will be here one day. And when he comes, he will reward each one of us according to our deeds. Romans 2, 6, he will render to each one according to his works. 2 Corinthians five ten. we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, because of that, Paul lived daily with a view of this mindset of final judgment. When he hoped that he would not run in vain, he says, over and over again. And so he begins to pile up words again to emphasize how much this church meant to him, how much the Thessalonians meant to him. He calls them our hope or joy or crown of boasting. Sometimes we think of, of boasting is always wrong. You should never boast. Well, that's not always true. Paul himself says what? I boast in what? The gospel, I boast in the cross of Christ, right? There's nothing wrong with boasting if it's you're boasting in the right thing. 
And here he calls it a crown of boasting. A crown refers to this, this wreath of garland. It's not talking about something a king would wear that's made of gold. That's what we think. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when they used to have the, 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 the uh, athletics in the stadium and they would win the prize. And what was their prize? This stupid little wreath they put on their head. Probably, you know, probably dried up and shriveled up in a couple weeks and gone. But it meant a lot because it, it designated them as completing a task in a, in a sporting event. They were the victor. And he says, you know what? You're that to us. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying you're our, our, our crown And that boasting is a, is a word of, of exaltation. It's, it's really something that is, you know, you're not, you're not boasting in an illegitimate way. It's like telling people about the Lord. You're boasting about the Lord. Well, that's not bad. It turns sinful when the boasting turns to what? Focusing on ourself, Right? We become prideful and we start to boast about ourselves and how good we are, how good this is, or how, whatever. That, that's where it's sinful. Here they legitimately, these words legitimately refer to what God has accomplished through us. You know, sometimes when you're in ministry and you're serving and and someone says, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your food, the food you, you cooked for us today. You know, I, I had this problem for many years. I didn't understand the concept of just saying, well, praise the Lord. You know, oh, no, no, I protest. Do you ever meet people that do that? You know, boy, you know, that was a great meal you cooked for the fellowship time. Oh, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. You know, well, just, it was the Lord. Well, no, it was you. Because you were in there turning on the stove and cooking the food. Okay? There's nothing wrong with understanding that God uses us as the body of Christ. And so sometimes when you get blessed that way, just say, praise the Lord. My brother always used to send me a text, you know. Wonderful message. You know, he watches it on, on the app and I'd always write that back, PTL. And the first, first couple of times, he goes, what's that mean? <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, it's kind of an education process. But it's good. It's not, it's not you know, when you're, when you're thanking somebody, thanking Ken or thanking Sam for sharing the word of God here, I, I'm not putting them on a pedestal. I'm simply thanking them for, for their, their diligent study and, and the effort that they put in to come and, Teach the word of God to the people of God. Everything that we do is because of God's grace and grace alone, right? And that's seen supremely in the cross. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast. Far be it from me, even though I'm a Pharisee, even though I'm educated very well, and I've done this and I've done that. He goes on and on and on. He says, far be it from me to boast except, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So the point here this morning is that if we care for one another, basically, as Paul did, we should deeply desire to be with one another. Often. Often. And the point of being together is not just to talk about sports, that's fine, or talk about the weather, that's okay, but rather to encourage, be encouraged to encourage one another spiritually so that in the day of Christ we may have the reason to glory because we did not labor in vain. I'm always appreciative I won't mention any names, but of a dear brother that sometimes will have get-togethers and be several people there and people are talking about everything under the sun, you know, how the warriors are doing, whatever. And inevitably, this brother brings up the concept of, of something spiritual. Well, what did you think of the message last Wednesday? What you, and I'm thinking, wow, this is great. You know, because that's what we should be doing together. Not that the other things are wrong. But we're only here for a limited time, and we need to make sure that our time as the body of Christ is well spent. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to close in a word of prayer, and then we'll have a song, and then we'll have our our closing time with Sam uh, Rajkumar. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you provide for us um, the salvation that we so desperately need. And Lord, you have provided it through Christ and Christ alone. And Father, it's only because of that that we can call ourselves the church. If it wasn't for Christ, the church wouldn't exist. And so, Father, we pray that as we're, I'm sure we're all thankful for the church. We're thankful to be here this morning. But Lord, I pray that we would look deep into our own hearts and say, is that, is that always the case? Or have we grown a little cold in our commitment? Have we felt you know, just a little too tired, too overwhelmed with the circumstances of life to commit ourselves to meeting together as the body of Christ, whether it's for study, whether it's for prayer, whether it's for fellowship. It's amazing to me in the New Testament, it says the church meant house to house, day by day. I mean, if we can meet once a week on a Sunday morning, we're, wow, that's great. (laughs) We're thinking we're way ahead of the game, but really we're falling far short. And so I pray that you would put it into our hearts as believers to desire to fellowship with one another, to invite friends and family over for times of fellowship and practice hospitality together as the body of Christ, to make an effort to be at functions the church does whatever whatever they are men's studies women's studies whatever and father that we wouldn't do it out of guilt but we would do it like paul he really wanted he really desired to be there in thessalonica with the believers and lord i pray that uh, our hearts would be changed in the same way we pray for anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in christ maybe their faith is growing weary maybe They don't understand faith, but Lord, I know that you can do that work in their heart. You can point them away from themselves and trying 
year after year after year to do things the right way only to end in failure every time. We applaud the effort, but it doesn't mean anything in the end. The gift of salvation is a gift. It's something we reach out and we take. And we thank you for and we choose to live for you from that period on. Setting ourselves aside, denying ourselves even at times. To serve Christ. And to trust in his goodness and his grace and his sacrifice. So that we're not trusting in our own good works. And none of us here, as many most likely have a lot of good works. They're not good enough to get you to heaven. Bottom line. It's only one thing that does that, and that's the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sins. So I pray that if anyone here this morning has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, that they would cry out to the Lord, Lord, I've heard this before, I understand, but Lord, make me the kind of person you want me to be. Um, Help me to turn from my sin. Help me to turn from the focus on myself and put the focus on you. Be gracious to me, a sinner. Save me, Lord. That's a prayer that God will answer if it's prayed from a sincere heart. And so, Father, we pray that you would just bless the closure of this service. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.